Whatever you do, don't get arrested. These were the last words that I recall my missionary friends saying to me as I boarded a train with a friend of mine headed to the, the district of uh, Bardamon in West Bengal, India. Now, he may have said some other things before I left, but it was that statement that was burned in my mind. All right? This was not the first time I heard about it. I heard it as we were training and preparing for this trip, and now here we are. I'm entering this train, getting ready to leave, and he sort of chillantly just kind of looks over at me and says, hey, don't get arrested. I'm, I'm thinking, well, what did he mean by that? At first, I thought that he was mostly joking, but my thoughts quickly changed as I found myself sitting in a police station in Andal. Now, it had happened in a flash. I mean, we had been going around for two days uh, in two different cities. We ended up in Andal. We'd been going, we'd been preaching the gospel throughout the streets. We'd been going uh, and been invited into people's homes, people who were hospitable, that were just curious about our faith, and they were asking us questions. We had the opportunity to go and, and meet with churches and, and encourage them through the word as we preached and taught and sang and prayed. And, and it was after a very long day that we were just getting ready to head back and, and get on our train and go back to Kolkata when my friend Sunil, who's a, uh, an indigenous church planter there, doesn't speak a word of English, just quickly comes over and starts ushering us towards this building that's right next to the train station, a building filled with men in uniforms with lots and lots of guns. So Tom and I looked at each other confusedly, and, and I'm sure we gulped really loud as these men with guns asked us to sit down in front of this very large desk. There we were. We had no time to ask our, our local friends who actually could speak English what was going on. We had no idea what was happening. We had no time. It, it even seemed like to pray. Now, if this had been a hospitable visit, they would have offered us some kind of refreshment, chai, coffee, something like that. There was none of it, none of it. Instead, uh, shortly after we sat down, this entered this, this man, this officer, who was just like angry and stout. He was a stout and angry man. And he came and he sat down right in front of us, okay? Now, I don't know if you've seen the movie Slumdog Millionaire, right? But if you remember the, the police officer, the investigator that was there kind of interacting with that guy, picture that guy in your mind, right, only on steroids, okay? This guy was bigger. He was uglier. He seemed to be a little bit more perturbed than that guy there. He was the chief of police, it turned out. But there he was, and as he was just like gruffly questioning our, our local friends there in Bengali, what was going on, we had no idea what was being said, no idea what was being asked. And all I had running through my mind was, whatever you do, don't get arrested. Right? I've got images of, of Phyllis and the boys. I had two boys at the time. And, and, it like, and, and my thoughts and my prayers were interrupted as this guy then turns to me, and he gruffly points out, he's like, who are you? Why are you here? Where are you from? And I'm like, huh, what was I going to say? Now, we came over. I came with a group of seminary students to India, and our goal was to train indigenous pastors, to train local Indian pastors on, on just ministry. We, had, we basically we, we'd camp out with them for three days, be with them 24-7, and, and teach them on things. And, and it, it, was, it was a privilege for me to go there, but I'm sure that there was this level of, pride in my own heart that me out of my extensive training and all of my years of American ministry experience was going to be able to go over there 
and teach these guys what it meant to pastor, what it meant to shepherd, what it meant to live the Christian life. My, uh, I, I was humbled earlier that week as I was given the responsibility of teaching basically a 10-hour block of this is what it means to be a Christian and to live the Christian life. And I'm teaching a bunch of guys who most of which knew little more than the bare facts of the gospel, but yet they had suffered so much for it. These men had lost homes, they'd lost jobs, they'd lost friends and family, they'd suffered beatings, some had been imprisoned for their faith. And yet I was there to teach them about what it meant to live the Christian life. And in this added sort of unexpected bonus, I got to go on these evangelism trips where we're going out to these different places and working with church planters who are starting pioneering works. And, and we're just going and, and sharing the gospel with people, people that were eager to hear. It was humbling. Now, I wish that I could tell you that I got right up there, that police station, And with all the boldness and being filled with the Holy Spirit, I got up and I proclaimed the gospel clearly and articulately to this very angry man. But instead, my answer was more like, my name's Chet. I'm an American. I'm here visiting with friends, you know, just meeting people, learning about your culture. And this has seemed like a great way to do it. Apparently he didn't like my answer, so he would turn back and then he would question some, my, my Bengali friend some more. And, and then each time he would kind of turn back to us. But because we didn't know what was being said and we didn't want to get these guys in trouble either, we, we just kept our answers vague, right? We, we weren't lying. We weren't denying, but we were just vague. I mean, we were there with a tourist visa. That's why we were there. All of those things that I said was true, but yet it was elusive. And we knew it. And after about a half an hour of this back and forth of of nebulous conversation, the the man was clearly frustrated. And he turned to me one last time and he said, listen, you come here again, you need to learn Bengali and Hindi. And then he got up and left the room. (laughs) We, We had no idea what that was about. Still confused, but we got up, we left the police station and made our way to board the train. Now, Tom and I had not denied our faith. But I've often wondered how well we represented it. We certainly didn't set an example for those three Christian brothers that we were with as to what it meant to be bold and to suffer for Christ. Men of whom had. One of which, Ani, only a few months after that, was beaten so severely for his bold witness to Christ that he spent a week in the hospital. trip was probably the most transformative event in my life. I was changed. Not changed because of my boldness, but because of my weakness. I was humbled. My eyes were open to my fear and longing for safety. I experienced shame at my cowardice and timidity. But I learned about God's grace and repentance and faith what that means. And I grew in boldness 
to the examples of my friends. Now, you may not have had such an experience, but we all have or we all will be put in places where we are tempted to deny Christ. Perhaps your situation might not be as extreme. Maybe it's much more subtle, but it's no less serious. Maybe you even realize already, even now, as, I, as I'm just even starting it, there, there have been ways that I have denied Christ. There have been ways that I have, have renounced him. I have failed to represent him. Well, this morning, we're going to look at Peter, one of the twelve one of Jesus' closest companions and dearest friends, one who professed that even if he would die, must die, he would not deny Jesus, only to turn around and only a few hours later to renounce him three times. We'll see how pride and a desire to play it safe, how fear and shame led not only to Peter's denial, but can also lead to our denial of the faith as well. And by the grace of God this morning, we will see that though we fail and we deny him, Christ died and was raised to forgive. So turn with me in your Bibles to Mark 14. We're going to start on page 851. Now, our primary passage is verses 66 through 72, but to really understand what's going on, we have to look at a bigger picture. So we're going to start in Mark 14, verse 27. So let's read verses 27 through 31 together. Mark 14, verses 27 through 31. And Jesus said to them, that's his disciples, You will all fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter said to him, Even though they all fall away, I will not. And Jesus said to him, Truly I tell you, this very night, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he said emphatically, even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. Now, if we're going to understand Peter's denial and how it applies to us, we have to start here in verses 27 through 31 with Peter's pride. Because if there is anything in the heart of man that will lead them to deny Jesus, it is man's own pride. Now, we've already seen how pride... Now, Peter is just a proud and impetuous man. I mean, it's pretty obvious as soon as Peter just kind of shows up. We always kind of see Peter just chiming in and giving his opinion. He's always talking. Have you noticed that? More than any other disciple, he's always talking. And when Jesus taught, for example, in the story of the rich young man in, in chapter 10, Peter would kind of listen to what Jesus said, but then he would draw attention to himself. Right? He would just kind of take it off of this conversation that Jesus was having. He would pl- place it squarely upon himself. So Jesus would say something like, Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. With man, it is impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. What's the moral of that? You can't enter the kingdom of God. God has to do that for you. Right? And how did Peter respond? See, we've left everything to follow you, Jesus. Look at me. Look at what I've done. And in his pride and in his arrogance and in his focus on himself, he completely missed the point of what Jesus was saying. 
In chapter 8, when Jesus said, who do you say that I am? Peter rightly responds, you are the Christ, to which Jesus said, hey, that was not given, that's not you, that was God giving that to you. But when Jesus began to teach them that the Son of God must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed, and three days later he would rise again, Peter arrogantly responds by rebuking Jesus. He's rebuking the Christ. He's rebuking the Son of God. Of course, Jesus turns around and gives him a rebuke of his own, doesn't he? He says, get behind me, Satan. You are not setting your minds on the things of God, but on the things of man. And there we see that Peter is so arrogant that he thought that he knew better than God. When Jesus stooped down to wash the feet of his disciples in John 13, Peter initially refused, saying, you will never wash my feet. To which Jesus said, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Peter was oblivious to his true need for Jesus. And when Jesus told them, as they were celebrating that Passover meal together, that one of the twelve would betray him, one of his dearest companions would turn him over, hand him over, exchange him for something else, Peter was grieved but he couldn't possibly believe that it was going to be him. In fact, he was certain of it. And as he goes along, what we see here is that he is confident. He's absolutely sure that it will not be him. And even when Jesus quotes from the prophecy of Scripture, Zechariah 13, verse 7, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. Peter is so sure that he and that it won't be him, that he actually goes against the prophecy of Scripture. He goes against the very word of God and rashly vows, even though they all fall away, I will not. So Jesus turns to him. He says, Peter, before the rooster crows twice, you are going to deny me three times. Jesus makes this prediction. Peter is so certain, so emphatic, that he actually boasts, even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. Peter was so sure of his loyalty and devotion to Christ that he was convinced that he could go against the very words of God. He was so certain, so confident that Zachariah was not talking about him. So convinced was he of his faithful devotion to Jesus and so certain of himself that he would actually go and attempt to prove Jesus' prediction wrong. I mean, could you imagine that? Even after Jesus told him in Luke 22 that Satan has demanded Peter, asking to sift him as wheat, Peter was sure that he will not fail. Jesus even went so far as to say that he prayed for Peter that he would not fail. But when he had turned again, meaning after you've denied me and repented, you are to strengthen your brothers. And yet, even after all that, Peter was sure that he would not deny Jesus. And maybe the pinnacle of it all, while his Lord was in agony, sweating drops of blood in the Garden of Gethsemane as he was pleading with his heavenly Father that this cup of his suffering might be removed, he'd asked Peter to pray three times, to pray for him, to pray for Peter himself. But yet Peter decided it was better to sleep. He was not ready. He was not watchful. 
So already we see the stage is set for Peter. He is well on his way to denying Jesus. As it says in Proverbs 16:18, pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Now, it's easy for us to look at this story and to look at Peter somewhat self-righteously and say, what, what's with Peter? Why does he not get this? What is wrong with this man? Can he not see what he's doing? What are you thinking, right? We, we're just kind of like, we just want to get after him and yell at him like we, like we yell at our TVs when we're watching a football game, you know? It's like, that's what we're doing when it comes to Peter. And yet, we're totally oblivious of the pride in our own lives. Are we not? Well, friends, like Peter, our pride reveals the areas in our lives where we are most likely to deny Jesus. Our pride reveals the areas in our lives where we are most likely to deny Jesus. So what are you proud of? What do you boast about? What are those things where you try to draw attention to who you are? Students, is it your grades? Is that what defines you? Maybe there's some sort of successes or or, uh, achievements that you've merited somehow. Maybe it's your job. Maybe some sort of skills or talents you have or, or a certain level of knowledge or abilities that you have that maybe sets you apart from some people in some particular area, no matter how silly in, in reality it is. I mean, we, we're proud about the dumbest things, aren't we? Where do you think you're better than other people? You compare yourself, you just feel like you're cut above the rest. Maybe it's the reverse. Where do you feel insecure? You may not realize this, but insecurity is a twisted form of pride. It's self-pity. It's morbid introspection of yourself, and you're lamenting that you are not what you want to be, or you're frustrated because people don't see you for the diamond that you really are. Friends, our pride lies to us. Our pride tells us that we are beyond help in this area. I am good. I know what I'm doing. I've got this. I do not need your help. I am just fine on my own. Pride minimizes the dangers that are all around us, thinking, man, we've got nothing to worry about. I don't need to be concerned about this. Pride minimizes our sin, And then the consequences of it as well, we don't think that they ought to be as bad, but then pride turns around and and compares to other people and and maximizes, it blows up the sins and and mistakes of other people. Pride tells you that you're better. Stuart Scott gives a helpful yet very repetitive definition of pride. Let's see if you can pick up on what he's getting at. It says, pride is the mindset of self. It's a master's mindset rather than that of a servant. Pride is a focus on self and the service of self and the pursuit of self-recognition and self-exaltation and a desire to control and use all things for self. Do you get at what he's driving at? At its core, pride is centering on self. And friends, if pride was an issue for Peter... In his day, 
it is certainly an issue for us and ours. Guys, we live in a day where we, like, everybody wants to be famous. Everybody wants to be known for something. Like, I am amazed if I let my kids turn the TV on, like, you see that there's, like, four-year-old kids that are automatic rock stars. You notice this? And they're, and they're heroes at everything that they do. They don't have to practice. They don't have to work at it. They don't have to try. They just are. And that's the kind of mindset that we have. And it's fueled by modern psychology and the self-esteem cult that acts really as gasoline on the flame of pride in man's own heart. Friends, what do you take pride in? I want you to think carefully about that. You have just identified your first step in the road to denying Jesus. Now, looking back at Peter's road to denial, as you work through Mark 14, we see that the next thing that happens is that Jesus' betrayer comes with this armed band to arrest him. Peter, thinking that this is his moment to shine, his time to be a hero, his time to come forward in all his might and all his glory, he steps forward with the sword and tries to defend poor helpless Jesus only to cut off this poor man's ear and run away scared as these men seize Jesus and lead him to the house of the high priest to be tried. But apparently, Peter doesn't think that he's denied Jesus yet or acted in fear. And so we see second in verses 53 and 54 that Peter continues down his path to denial by playing it safe. Peter plays it safe. His arrogant and brash attack didn't work, and so he tried something a bit more subtle. So let's read verses 53 and 54. It says, And they led Jesus to the high priest, and all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes came together. And Peter followed him at a distance, right into, the temp, uh, right into the courtyard of the high priest. And he was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. Now, as they led Jesus up to stand trial before the ruling council, Peter secretly slips into the courtyard. He's undercover. He doesn't want to be noticed. He doesn't want people to see him or to identify him as being with Jesus. Now, it was a good thing that Peter followed Jesus. That was good, okay? But it says that he followed Jesus at a distance. That was not good. It says that he followed Jesus right into the courtyard of the high priest. That is good. But it says that he was sitting but with the guards and warming himself at the fire. That is not good. He is there mingling and rubbing shoulders with some of the men who could have seized Jesus. He's at a distance from Jesus, but yet he is with them. Some of these men who potentially arrested Jesus. And while Jesus is up there, all alone, being unfairly condemned, no one to stand in his defense, no one to come to his aid, Jesus is there by himself, being unjustly condemned and mocked and beaten. Here is one of Jesus' closest friends, one of his dearest companions, one who swore that he would give his life to protect Jesus, to defend Jesus. And what is he doing warming himself by the fire. Peter's warmth 
and comfort and safety appears to be more important to him than being with Jesus. His desire for comfort has at least placed him in a compromising situation. Now, technically, Peter was there. Right? When you look at him and you compare him to the other disciples who fled in fear, right? he was at least there. That's better, right? Well, this is not a game of comparison. This is not about who sinned less, but who identifies themselves with Jesus. The truth is, while Jesus was being unfairly condemned, they were all more concerned about their own safety and comfort than they were about being identified with Christ. And by playing it safe, by staying at a distance from Jesus, remaining with these worldly men while warming himself by the fire, Peter is one step closer to denial. When you read and you think about this, does your soul not just want to scream, how could he do that? How could Peter just sit there among his enemies, while he's warming himself by the fire, while his Lord Jesus is upstairs being unfairly condemned. Why did he not run to him? Why did he not come to his aid? Why did he not at least be a voice of reason as to who Jesus truly was, rather than standing down there warming himself by the fire? What was he thinking? But yet, we do the same thing. I mean, how often do we say that we're Christians, we say that we follow Christ, but in all honesty, we do it just like Peter. We do it at a distance. We do it when it's safe. We do it when it's comfortable. We do it when it's convenient. But if it gets hard, it's a different deal. We want to try to remain hidden. We might come here, we might sing songs professing our love for Jesus. We might make rash vows of our allegiance to Christ, and yet we spend most of our time distant from Jesus because we want to play it safe. We want the comfort and security of this world, and so we will rub shoulders with it in order to attain it. And while unbelievers go on hating Jesus and spreading false witness about Jesus, while they mock him and condemn him as a blasphemer, we politely nod and make small talk and continue to find our warmth and our solace in the flames of the world. We keep Jesus at arm's length while we, without the slightest wisdom or discretion, indulge in every form of pleasure and entertainment that this world offers. And then we try to excuse it by giving Jesus a footnote in our conversation. And we basically say, hey, listen, I'm just trying to know and to engage culture. And that's why I'm here. I'm trying to meet people where they are. I'm trying to practice friendship evangelism. When all the while, Jesus never really comes into it. Not at all. Because we're too busy enjoying the comforts and the pleasures to really identify ourselves with him. To really bear witness to his name. Friends, we ought to examine ourselves very closely here. How do you play it safe in the Christian life? people even know that you're a Christian? 
Your coworkers know that you're a Christian. Your friends, your neighbors, does your family know that you're a Christian? If you were to ask one of them, what what does you know, what is John? What is what is Jason? Who, what do they identify themselves with? Who, who do they identify themselves? Would they say, well, you know, he really likes this and this and this and this from the world? Would they say he identifies himself with Christ? And it is obvious in the way he lives his life. Would your schedule? Would your calendar, would your checkbook, or would your GPS bear witness to the fact that you identify yourself with Christ? Or maybe I ought to put it differently. You see, we play it safe and we seek comfort and security when we love other things, right? So what, what is it that you love? What do you love in the world? And how, does your, how is that reflected in your time and in your money? You know, John puts it this way in 1 John 2. Verses 15 through 17 says, Do not love the world nor the things from the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride in possessions, this is not from the Father but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. Friends, a love for the world, this desire to play it safe, is just another step in the road to denying Jesus. Examine yourselves carefully. So there's pride and there's playing it safe. The third step on the road to denying Christ is fear. Now in verses 53 through 65 that we looked at last week, we saw this story of Jesus' trial before the council. And while that's happening, simultaneous to that event, we have verses 66 through 71. It says, And Peter was below in the courtyard. Oh, and as Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came. And seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, You also were with the Nazarene Jesus. But he denied it, saying, I neither nor, know nor understand what you mean. Then he went out into the gateway, and the rooster crowed. And the servant girl saw him and began to say to the bystanders, This man is one of them. But again he denied it. And after a little while, the bystanders again said to Peter, Certainly you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. But he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. So there's Peter. He is trying to remain unseen. He's trying to remain hidden while, he, while Jesus endured this false testimony against himself, while Jesus remained faithful to his confession in spite of his suffering. Jesus was on trial. Peter was not. In Jesus' trial, they were all bearing false witness and saying incorrect things, false testimonies, lies about Jesus. Do you notice that with Peter's situation, they were all telling the truth? Jesus, despite this false witness and despite his suffering, remained faithful to his confession. And yet Peter denied him three times. Now I wonder, when you read this, does this seem like a big deal to you? 
wonder how often we just kind of read this and kind of just glance over it, move on, try not to make a big deal out of it. Well, you know, it is to Mark. Mark is very concerned about this. You see, in Mark, he never, ever takes his focus off of Jesus. I mean, you can kind of picture Mark holding this spotlight always on Jesus, except for two situations. One is in Mark chapter 6, where he briefly takes it off and places it on John the Baptist and his faithful witness and death. Second is right here, focusing on Peter's denial. And so we can be sure that if Mark takes the spotlight off of Jesus and he places it on Peter, this is a very serious event. In this passage, Peter moves away from playing it safe to outright denial. And he does so because he's afraid, because of his fear. He's there, he's warming himself by the fire when the servant girl comes up to him and she recognizes him. She honestly, earnestly recognizes him and she says, you were with the Nazarene Jesus. Now this is not a trial, right? She's, she's not an official in any, any way. She's not accusing him. She's just pointing out the truth. Well, you're with him. And what harm could this little servant girl actually do to Peter? I mean, think about that. What harm could she actually cause? I mean, Peter, he only needed to ignore her, maybe move away slowly, just kind of ignore the whole thing, but that's not what Peter does. Instead, out of fear, he claimed ignorance. I neither know nor understand what you mean, which is a lie. Peter outright lied to her. There's just one problem with this, Peter. Something you kind of overlooked here. You're failing to answer the question of why you are there. Okay? This is like three or four in the morning. Okay? It makes sense for the servants of the high priest to be at the high priest's house. It makes sense for the guards of the high priest to be at the high priest's house. It does not make sense for some strange Galilean guy being at the high priest's house at 3 or 4 in the morning. So why are you there, Peter? Of course, this girl is right to kind of identify and be like, you're clearly with the man. She's, she's just, it's good deduction, right? It's just her observation is legitimate. And so Peter moves away from the light of the fire into the gateway, maybe perhaps thinking that, They'll think that, she, that he actually left. And it's at this point that one commentator rightly noticed that Peter is not only moving away from the light, but as his denials became more and more forceful, he's also moved further away from Jesus. In his fear, Peter moved further away from Jesus. Now, it was at this point that the rooster crowed the first time. Now, I, when I come to texts like this, I just my brain starts going, and I start asking a billion questions. And I, I want to know why... Like, did, did you not hear this, Peter? Did you not hear the rooster crow? I mean, it's a, it's a rooster crowing. It's like 3 or 4 in the morning. Did you not hear it? It can't be loud. There can't be a lot of traffic to kind of impede. There's no sirens in that day. So surely you heard, Peter, that there's a rooster crowing. And did not that remind you of what Jesus had just said to you a few hours earlier? It's not like Jesus said this two months ago, and you're forgetful, right? Jesus just told you a couple of hours ago, and you were so emphatic about not denying him, you think that you would remember that. Was he just not paying attention? Was he just so consumed with himself, or was Peter neglectful? 
how neglectful are we of the warnings that we see in Scripture? I, I can get that. Or maybe Peter was playing a game. You know, it's just kind of like, okay, see what I can get away with here. Jesus said that I would deny him three times before the rooster code twice. So I just have one strike against me at this point. I'm, I'm still good. I've got two more strikes before the rooster crows the second time. Let's see if I can get away with it. Like making these sort of these mental compromises. I mean, we all relate to that, don't we? What's the loophole? What can I get away with? Well, the servant girl saw that this strange man who's milling around at three or four in the morning didn't actually leave, but instead went to the gateway. And so she says to the bystanders who were there at the fire, this man is one of them. Again, very obvious deduction. You have to remember, like, we kind of get images that there's this huge crowd around, like just kind of wanting to know what's happening. But we forget the fact that this trial occurred at night. And it occurred at night to be done in secrecy so that the crowd wouldn't know about it and turn against the religious leaders. So there's not going to be a huge crowd around. Okay? There would be the servants. There would be some of these guards, maybe a few other people that heard about it, but there wouldn't be a lot of people. So Peter would stand out. And she didn't even address him the second time. She didn't even talk to Peter. She's talking to the bystanders. She's there by the fire. He's out in the gateway, you know, and, and still he found the need to come and defend himself. Perhaps the bystanders that she spoke to were the guards, and so in fear he lies to protect himself. He denies the truth because he's afraid of the consequences. Apparently is second denial was lengthier than what we have here in Scripture because what we see is that his accent actually gave him away in his third denial, right? The result is that one of the bystanders recognized that he was a Galilean. Well, how would they do that? It's not like Galileans dressed funny, right? Like he was kind of in a suit and tie or something, right? It was different. It's not like he shaved their, you know, cut their hair or whatever. It's because he had an accent, they spoke the same language, but they had an accent. Just like if you go to the South, people speak English, but they speak it different than you. Or, or you go to Boston, or you go to New York, or you go to Chicago. All you people from Chicago, you have accents. I don't have an accent, but you all have accents. <laughs> and it gave Peter away. Peter is so desperate this time, though that he actually went so far as to invoke a curse upon himself. Now, Peter's not cussing here, okay? He's invoking a curse of God upon himself. He said, I do not know this man of whom you speak. He's saying, I swear to you, if I know this man, let me be cursed by God. In his own fear, Peter would rather dare face the condemnation of God rather than even speak the name of Jesus. You know, three times Peter had failed to understand Jesus' announcement of his suffering and the call to discipleship that his disciples would suffer with him. Three times Peter did not heed Jesus' warning to watch and to stay awake and pray. Three times Peter was too afraid to even utter the name of Jesus. And three times he denied the Lord who he swore to give his life to protect. Why did Peter deny Christ? Fear. Fear of man. Fear of death. 
Perhaps he recognized the gravity of the situation he found himself in, and he lost his nerve. His pride was not enough to overcome his fear. Now, on this one, I think it's a little bit more difficult for us to be critical of Peter, isn't it? I mean, let's face it, we, we have a hard time even going to our neighbor and talking about the weather, let alone talk about the gospel. And we certainly don't have people who are identifying us as being with Jesus. You don't go down the street, Kyla, do you? And, and people say, that's Kyla, she's with Jesus. Do you? No, we don't have that. Let alone people who are willing to bind you and to condemn you and to crucify you because you follow him. And yet this very thing is happening all over the world. There are men and women and even children facing persecution every day for their profession of faith. And it's not because they're so much more in tune with God than we are. Like they've got some sort of secret knowledge about Jesus that we don't have. It's not that they're more informed than we are and that kind of bolsters their faith because most of them actually know a whole lot less about the gospel than you do. You know, I had to go 30 years of my life before I actually met someone who truly suffered for their faith, who was truly persecuted. I'm not talking about being made fun of. I'm not talking about maybe being overlooked for a job or something like that. I'm talking real, hardcore persecution. I was 30 years old. Surrounded almost my entire life by people who profess Christ, and never do they experience anything like that. And yet this is commonplace, friends. What you see here is not all that Christianity is. It's not. And these Christians from across the globe live in constant fear for their lives and for the lives of their loved ones. It's not like they just have this absence of fear, right? Because they're so much more spiritual. Instead, they entrust their souls to a good and faithful creator while doing good. They refuse to deny Jesus, and they're willing to give their lives to do it. And they do it because they believe the promise. Jesus speaks that there is something greater, and they live for that rather than for this. And so why do we think that our lives should be any different? Honestly. Why do you think that you are somehow different because you live here in America or because you're privileged in some certain way? Why do you think that you should not suffer the same types of things? Is, American, is the call to American Christianity somehow different than the call in Mark, that we read about in Mark chapter 8 that if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and for the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and to forfeit his life? And for what can a man give in return for his life? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Friends, can I just tell you that, that faith is not the absence of fear? But faith is the grace of God given to us to stand in the face of it.
You know, Mark wrote this gospel account to his original audience, a group of Gentile Christians who who were suffering persecution for their faith. They were being persecuted under the Roman government. He's writing to these suffering Christians so that they would, because they would have been tempted to, just like Peter, deny Jesus to save their lives. Each of them would be asked to make a confession. That Caesar is Lord. But to say Caesar is Lord means that Jesus is not. But to say that Jesus is Lord is to say that Caesar is not. That's punishable by death. So he writes this to them who are tempted to deny Jesus to save their lives. And he's writing to us who in our foolishness and in our fear are tempted to deny Jesus for a whole lot less. A whole lot less. So, friends, what are you afraid of? What are you afraid of living without? This is your next step on the path to denying Jesus. So in our path to denial, there's pride, there's playing it safe, there's fear, and fourth, there's shame. Look at verse 72. After Peter had denied Jesus this third time, it says immediately the rooster crowed a second time. And Peter remembered how Jesus said to him, Before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he broke down and wept. As soon as he invoked the curses of God in his defense, he turns around and that silence is sort of broken by the sound of the rooster crowing for the second time. And Peter remembered Jesus' prediction. He remembered that how he had done just what Jesus said that he would do. He would denied him three times and he broke down and he wept. He was ashamed. He was grieved by what had happened. But can I just tell you that At this point, there's little difference between Judas and Peter. They're actually in almost identical spots. Both of them had followed Jesus. Both of them had expectations of what they wanted Jesus to be and how they would benefit from Jesus. But when Jesus began to take a turn and and go a different path than the one that they were on, they continued down their same paths, towards their same goals, away from Jesus. Judas had betrayed Jesus. Peter had denied him. Judas, according to Matthew 27, was broken because he had betrayed innocent blood. He tried to go give the money back. Peter broke down and wept because he denied Jesus. Both of them were filled with shame over what they had done. Now the question really is how would they respond? See, the denial doesn't end with just words that are said, but how they actually bear themselves out in our lives. What happens as a result? What is the result of their denial? Well, we know what happened to Judas. He went out and hung himself. Denial leads to shame. Shame can lead to denial. And as we saw in Mark 8, if you are ashamed of Jesus, you will deny him. But when we found ourselves having denied Jesus, maybe not verbally, but maybe in the way that we live our lives, we, like Peter and Judas, we experience shame. Experience shame over our sin, over our betrayal, over our denial. Then that shame can keep us from Jesus. Judas' shame kept him from Jesus. He hung himself. Peter's shame could have kept him from Jesus. 
Let me ask you, what are you ashamed of? Have you ever been ashamed of Christ? Have you ever been afraid or ashamed to identify yourself with his name? Maybe there are things that you've said, things that you've done, even things that you've thought about that you think are hard to forgive. And that shame kind of keeps you from Jesus. Are there things in your life that you're afraid that, you know, if, if this person knew about that or if this person knew about that, they would leave me? Are there those things in your life where you're just like, you know what, if Jesus knew about that, he wouldn't love me? Friends, don't be deceived by that. Do not let shame keep you from Jesus. Do not let past denials keep you from Jesus. This is another step on our path to denial. But fortunately for us, the path to denial doesn't have to end there. For many it has, but it doesn't have to be the case. The solution to denial is fifth, repentance and faith. Now we have the privilege of knowing the whole story of Peter. His case was not a hopeless one. Though he had in his pride and in his self-security and his fear and in his shame denied his Lord and Savior, this was not the end. Peter realized that he was not following Jesus' path, that he had gone astray, that he had gone off course, and it was not Jesus' job to come and and follow Peter's path. Peter had to redirect. He had to recalculate. He had to follow Jesus. He had to turn and be united with Christ again. And that happens through repentance and faith. And this was really the only ultimate difference between Judas and Peter, aside from the fact that Jesus prayed for Peter specifically, that his faith would not fail. But aside from that, as from a worldly standpoint, from an earthly, uh, human standpoint, let me say, uh, that Judas had worldly sorrow that led to death. But Peter had a godly sorrow that led to repentance without regret. But this is no surprise to Jesus. Jesus gives us hope even in this account. Did you notice where it was? Look again up at chapter 14, verses 27 and 28. Jesus said, I will strike, he's quoting from Zechariah 13. He said, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Now he said this to all of his disciples. And you could say, well, Judas was there too. Clearly he wasn't talking to Judas. So maybe this doesn't apply to Peter. Well, the promise was picked up in Mark 16, verse 7. Flip over there real quick. Mark 16, verse 7. The angel appeared to the women at the empty tomb. Jesus had been raised. And so the angel said to them, But go, tell Jesus' disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. Remember when Jesus told Peter that Satan had demanded him in Luke 22, verses 31 and 32, that he told Peter, I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. But when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Peter's denial was no surprise to Jesus. Jesus' death on the cross, his resurrection from the dead, paid the penalty for Peter's pride, for Peter's playing it safe, 
for Peter's fear, for Peter's shame, and even for Peter's denial. Later, the resurrected Jesus would meet Peter in Galilee. In John 21, he appeared on the shore of the Sea of Galilee while Peter and some of the disciples were fishing. Peter saw, leapt from the boat, swam out to meet with Jesus, and they had this great breakfast. And in verses 15 through 19, there's this touching story of reconciliation. It says, when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, feed my lambs. And he said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, tend my sheep. And Jesus said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? This time Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, the same number as he had denied Jesus, do you love me? And Peter said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. He said this to show what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. Peter would go on to face beatings and imprisonments. History tells us that he was bound and he was led to a cross where he was hung upside down upon it. Peter in the rest of his life had many opportunities to deny Jesus, but he never did. By the grace of God, he remained a faithful, humble, bold, trusting, regret-free follower of Christ. Friends, if there is hope for Peter, then there's hope this morning for you. I don't know where you are. I don't know what kind of shame or fear, sense of security or pride that you're bearing this morning, but I can tell you that Christ is sufficient for it all. He died and he was raised in order to forgive And the solution to your pride and self-seeking, your fear and shame, is the cross of Jesus Christ. What is required is repentance and faith. The cross of Christ humbles us from the vain pursuit of self-recognition. We recognize that our identity is in the King overall. Jesus' resurrection frees us from the futility of self-exaltation that we now live for His glory and for His name and not my own. Jesus' sacrificial death as he radically obeyed the will of his Father to pay the ransom for our comfort-seeking and our half-heartedness frees us from the need to play it safe. The promise of eternal reconciliation to God frees us from the need to build our own perishable kingdoms here on earth. Jesus' victory over death frees us from the fear of death. Oh, death, where is their victory? Where is your sting? Living for the glory of him frees us from the fear of man. Jesus suffered shame and agony so that we might be freed from ours. So friends, have no fear. 
Because though we fail and deny Him, Jesus died and was raised to forgive. So this morning I ask, would you repent and believe the gospel? Let's pray together. Father, we are humbled by your word. God, I I ask that this morning your spirit would be at work through it to reveal those areas of pride and and comfort-seeking and fear and shame that would keep us from following Christ. God, I pray that we would see our need of his sacrifice on our behalf, that we would see it as a beautiful and glorious thing, that it is worth more than this world has to offer, that there is hope and joy and peace to be found in our Savior Jesus Christ. And I pray that we, this morning, would turn to him. Father, we're getting ready to celebrate the Lord's Supper, and I pray that we would think carefully about the state of our souls confess and repent and believe that this would be a tangible reminder of Christ's death on our behalf so that we might go out of here and proclaim him boldly until he comes again. And we thank you for giving us what we do not deserve. Pray that Christ may be honored in our lives or in our death. It's in his name we pray. Amen.